another world, another time, in the age of wonder. You are listening to Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone. This is what I came for. Your vital essence, the dark crystal. I can feel something. Hear it almost. Don't move. Don't move. Where would I go? Fire! Here's your host, Philip Mitchell. Hello and welcome to Trial by Stone. This is episode 2 of the podcast. First of all, I'd like to thank everyone who listened to the first episode of the show. It was a blast making it and I hope that you'll enjoy many more episodes to come. A few days after the release of the show, I realised that searching for the show on iTunes and Facebook was difficult. For example, if anyone was using the keywords Dark Crystal, it wouldn't appear in the search results. I've decided to add the unofficial Dark Crystal podcast tag for it to be easy to find for new listeners. Thanks to Shannon and Melissa for the heads up. The first episode of the podcast has reached over 150 downloads. When I started the podcast, I really had no idea what to expect. So knowing that there are people out there that want to listen to a Dark Crystal themed podcast is just fantastic and it encourages me even more to make each episode um, as great as possible. And I have lots of ideas for future episodes of the show. And as always, if you have any suggestions for the show, send me an email at trialbystonepodcast at gmail.com. Now let's begin with news the Crystal Bats have transmitted to us this month. And begin all the same big change. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. Crystal Bats fly! Search the land! Search the water! Search the sky! Right now, the Dark Crystal Creative Creature Contest has ended and they have selected a winner and it is Jeff Brown from Exton, Pennsylvania. Congratulations on winning the contest and to everyone who entered. I've had a look at some of the entries that were posted online and they all looked fantastic. If only I had the artistic skills to pull off the caliber of work you all put through. This month's guest is Tim Clark. He is a puppeteer, toy designer, sculptor and more. He worked on the Dark Crystal in design and fabrication supervisor of the Mystics, as well as other contributions for other creatures as well. Prior to the film, he worked on The Muppet Show and after on Fraggle Rock. Tim has created many toys, including sectors, boglins, and even prototype sculptures for the proposed Dark Crystal figurines for Hasbro, which we'll get into on the show. So with that all said, let's go to the Podling Village. Tim, thanks for joining on Trial by Stone. Uh, You're very welcome. Good to be here. Thank you, thank you. I I guess I'm very interested in knowing how you first got into puppeteering. Um, Well, actually, I started when I was a little kid. Let's see, my great aunt gave me some Stife puppets, and um, my parents gave me Pelham marionettes, which I believe are made in Europe somewhere. And... I used to do uh, marionette and puppet shows for kids in the neighborhood to make, you know, like extra money. And mm-hmm. I did that for, you know, quite a few years. And then when 
the kids in the surrounding neighborhood got too old to come to puppet shows, I stopped. And then once I went to Pratt to study art education, uh, Kermit Love, who is the guy who designed Big Bird and Snuffleupagus, was teaching there, teaching puppetry there. And uh, I had tried to get in his class every year that I was there, but it was reserved for seniors because the, show, the, the class was so popular. So finally, in my last semester of my senior year, I got into the class. Then after doing a lot of work in Kermit's class, he asked me if I would come and work for him when I finished school. And I said, yes, of course. That was, that was easy. Then I worked, Kermit did a lot of different projects. Kermit was a costume designer before he worked at Muppets, and he did a lot of costume designs for New York City Ballet and for Joffrey Ballet. So we were active in building costumes for ballet companies. We were doing puppets for TV commercials. We were always producing puppets for the Sesame Streets that were in the foreign markets, like Germany and Mexico and Kuwait. And so that was mostly what I did with Kermit while I was working there, you know, with him for a year. And then Kermit's work would kind of go up and down because he would have big projects and then he wouldn't have work for, you know, a couple of months and then he would have another big project. So it was very uneven. And um, I just wasn't making enough money to live on. So I went to see him when he was teaching his class back at Pratt in September. And as I walked in the door, as his class finished, he said, oh, I'm so glad you came here today because uh, they're starting up a new project at Muppets and I think you would be perfect for it. And I want you to go up and interview with Jim next Thursday. And I was like, wow, I was like, I didn't even get the words out of my mouth to, to ask him if I could have a recommendation to go there. He was just... It was as if he was reading my mind. So I then gathered up all the puppets I had been doing, which I'm hoping I, I actually found the old slides of all the puppets I had made while I was at Pratt and while I was working at Kermit's studio. Because in the downtimes, I would, I would design and build my own puppets. And I just found the slides of them recently. So I'm hoping to get them converted so that I can post them on my Instagram so people will be able to see you know, where I came from before I got to Muppets. <laughs> so then I went and met with Jim and I had stuffed all my puppets in these big bags. And then I just went in and, you know, he introduced himself as if he needed an introduction. And then, you know, he asked me what I had been doing and I told him and then he said, okay, let's see what you brought. So I just started pulling them, all the different puppets out and one of them was a dragon that I had made that was about eight feet long and it went from my one hand to my opposite hand over my head and the, the bump in the dragon's back was the top of my head. And uh, Jim was just like, he was, I think he was a little surprised by how sophisticated they were. So when I finished showing them all to him, he said, okay, when can you get started? And I said, I'll start tomorrow. And he said, no, no. He said, I need time to, 
talk to uh, the office and, you know, let them know that you're coming. So he said, how about next Tuesday? And I said, that would be great. So that's how I started. And the first project I worked on at Muppets was Dark Crystal. And that it, the production started up in New York. Um, you worked on um, mainly um, the, the mystics, but also other creatures. I'm, I'm just curious about what was the, um, I guess, the process when creating um, the creatures? Well, when I first started, the mystics were being worked on by somebody else, and they were being carved out of a solid block of foam and then covered with latex and paint to give it a skin. And it wasn't real, it was all right, but it wasn't a very effective. And when you carve urethane foam like that, it doesn't hold up very long. It will last for a little while, but it has a tendency to crack and split from the movement of opening and closing the mouth. So Jim had met with Dick Smith, the very famous makeup artist who had done, you know, just a lot of Hollywood uh, films, The Exorcist and Raging Bull and all these things. And Dick, who recently just passed away, he was 90-something, but he was incredibly generous person. He, he came in and he taught us how to, you know, use foam latex, how to sculpt to make it. And that was the beginning of using foam latex to make puppets. And Dark Crystal was the first film to ever use that process to build puppets instead of using it as a uh, makeup appliance. So then we switched from carving out of foam to sculpting out of clay and making plaster molds and casting the foam latex in the plaster molds. And I was the um, person who had been sculpting the mystic heads out of you know, cut foam uh, left. She wasn't happy working full time as a building puppets. She, she wanted to get back to doing her own sculpture. So I was given the task of sculpting them. And Brian Froud came over and was living in New York and he would sketch and draw and I would sculpt. And the very first sculpted and foam latex head is on my Instagram page. And it, you'll, you'll see it's the pre-production shots that were done in New York. They're kind of fuzzy, but there's, there's a couple of the pictures of them there. Like I've had a look at the, um, your Instagram page and yeah, I uh, really, really like looking at these um, behind the scenes kind of stills. And I have more. It's just, it's just a matter of the t- having the time to post them, but I will eventually post more of them. Oh, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. So then after that, it was just a lot of work building each and every one of the mystics. I think I worked on for about a year in New York, because I started in September and then the following summer, I think it was probably around July, they decided that they were going to be moving the whole production to England because Jim had been working with Sir Lord Lou Grade, uh, who produced The Muppet Show and the Muppet movies. And he agreed to put up the money to do Dark Crystal. And in between working on stuff for Dark Crystal, I was also working on puppets for Muppet Show because that was already being done in England. So it's like you would work on stuff for Dark Crystal and then you'd have a break where we had to come up with a lot of puppets for 
the different characters on Muppet Show and we would take like a three week break and then we would go back to working on Dark Crystal and then, you know, we would go back to working on Puppets for Muppet Show. So it was kind of flip flopping back and forth. And then I left for England, I believe in July and I went to the studio, um, which was set up in Hampstead and it was literally just four walls. <laughs> and electricity and water. It was just a big old post office building that Jim had bought and we had to set up the studio space from scratch. So actually one of the first things I did was help to design the work tables and we created a flexible space format because all the tables were on wheels that were with, had uh, lockdown casters so you could, you could lift the table up and move it or then lower it and it would be back on four legs so it had you know really good stability and that way we could as we were working on different characters depending on the size of those characters we could use the space differently in the workshop if some one group like say the Skeksis people or the Gartham people needed more room we could shift the tables around to give them space to work so it worked out really well it's a great working space and beautiful skylights and it was it was a joy to work there yeah I, I can yeah definitely imagine yeah just working within that within that world that's i guess never been seen you know it was all you know created by you know brian jim and and yourself as well to create the world um and yeah like i've recently been like i've watched it as of probably a couple of weeks ago on the blu-ray and you know, every every viewing, I I notice something different or see you know things in the background and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so yes, and it's unfortunate because the the movie was actually shot with a lot of heavy gels, uh, different colored gels to kind of create a mood, um, and a lot of the detail that was put into the characters was lost because of that. I, a lot of people who have or people who afterwards would see the puppets in an exhibit in a museum were just astounded at the detail that was was in there. It, it just didn't show up on the film, unfortunately. I was I, I was a little disappointed actually when I saw the movie. I was like, because we spent so much time and work, you know, putting in these minute details from even the beads on the mystics' clothing were all handmade you know, out of clay and paint, hand painted. All their costumes were hand painted. Everything, every, every single thing about them was handmade. And the same thing is true with, you know, the characters in the sets that moved, you know, like every, every single thing was handmade. And just, yeah, put a lot of attention to, to detail, um, a lot more detail than, yeah, than what was shown on, on the film. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and like, how, how many, like, I know, like, in the film, you know, 10 Mystics and 10 Skeksis. So was it actually 10 um, Mystics were all created or was it just like, you know, you had, a, you know, a couple of Mystics and you just had 10, you know, different heads that you sort of... No, actually, there were 20 made as a backup in case something went wrong. Because if one of them got too close to a hot lamp or something, a hot light on set and, you know, had gotten, you know, burnt or 
you know, if a co- piece of the costuming pulled off or ripped, they didn't have time to stop and like sit there and wait for you to repair stuff. So there were doubles of every single character. And um, I think that was true on almost all the major characters, not certainly not the, the background pieces. So there were doubles of the Skeksis. There were doubles. I mean, in in some some cases, I think there were probably triples of the Skeksis because some were walk around costumes, some were puppet for, built for puppeteering from underneath with cables. So the, all of the Mystics had people in them. They didn't need to have separate, you know, just hand puppet versions. Uh, the same thing with Jen and Kira. You know, there were Kieran Shaw who was tiny and well proportioned you know guy was used for long shots of uh jen running yeah definitely and 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 those were the shots that sort of like made me believe in the whole world even more um this thing didn't have that puppet like you know movement or anything like that with those wide shots right and actually jim was kind of hesitant to do that he really wanted to try and make a running puppet but you know they tried a couple of models and they could just never get it to be quite believable. Of course, now you could do it with green screen technology is, or chroma key has advanced a great deal since Dark Crystal was done. So it would have been a lot easier. And I guess like, um, like out of all the mystics, did, did you have, do you have a favorite mystic out of all your creations? <laughs> um, well, it's interesting because, you know, like all of the mystics were given names after the movie was done. So to me, they were all... You know, it was all just the mystics and they didn't have all these like Ura names and whatever. You know, it's like I, I, it, it's like I don't even know all of them, their proper names. But like we would call one the Weaver or one Jen's Master or the, you know, um, the Sand Painter. Yeah, just based on what they were doing. Yeah. Then that they were done by names and um the sculpt I liked the most was probably after the the dying the the master who died at the beginning of the movie after he was gone. The next mystic in line, who was Jen's master, was probably my favorite. And what was like the other creatures um, that you um, designed on on the film? Well, there's a lot. I I was asked to do a lot of the pod people, but they said my pod people were too ugly. So they made those the slaves. <laughs> and then I worked on the crystal bats because their, their wings all had to be hand carved out of balsa wood so that they would be light. They were all radio controlled. I worked on um, the land strider. Um, I built or I helped to build the mechanism when his, you know, like spear comes shooting out of the front of his head. I helped to design and develop that. And then some of the other, you know, woodland creatures, uh, you know, everybody had a hand in doing those because if you, if you came up with kind of a weird idea of how to move a puppet, it was like, okay, yeah, throw it in there. You know, it's like you could come up with something neat and different. There's a great little uh, video on the making of Dark Crystal that shows uh, Foz Fosicus using a rod puppet and a can of air to make the wings move. And Foz was just brilliant at doing these amazingly either incredibly complex mechanisms 
that you couldn't see, figure out how they worked, or doing things that were incredibly simple, like using a can of air to make something move. And Foz was a big influence on how I learned to build and design puppets. He was just incredibly smart and had an amazingly varied background. He, his father was the last pipe organ builder in the U.S. And he learned how to build every station of a pipe organ because he had to know how to do all the parts if he was going to run the company. Unfortunately, after he came out of the war, the, the, the company had closed because there just wasn't any need for pipe organs anymore. Everything had been you know, changed over to electronics or electric organs. And then when he came out of the war, he started working for Bill Baird, who, was, who had a lot of did marionette shows in live in New York, but also did a lot of television and film. He is probably best known for doing the goat herd marionettes in The Sound of Music. And Foz started building marionettes with Bill Baird. And he also had this incredible fascination with radio-controlled airplanes. So he kind of combined all of these things from building marionettes to building pipe organs to building, you know, radio-controlled airplanes into making these amazing mechanisms for the Muppets. And just I, like one of the, the really simple things that Foz came up with that people always wonder, well, how did they get the Muppets to ride bicycles and great Muppet caper? And he simply made a, he made the bicycle. He made a one gear bicycle so that when the rear wheel moved, the pedals moved, he attached Kermit's feet to the pedals. So as the bicycle rolled, his feet would go up and down. And then marionetted the, the bicycle from the roof, basically, and just rolled it across the scene. And it made him look like he was, you know, actually pedaling the bicycle. Yeah, I definitely remember. Yeah, like I remember watching yeah, the, the Muppet movie a um, couple of years ago on VHS. And yeah, like just seeing that shot, it's like, wow, you know, it was really impressed on how they um, pulled that shot off. Yeah. Yeah. And that was all Foz. You know, it's like that was Foz's brilliance. I don't think he ever got the credit he should he should have. Yeah. And, and of all the radio-controlled mechanisms and, you know, the Skeksis's heads and, you know, a lot of the woodland animals in Dark Crystal were all based, if, if they weren't made by, by Foz, they were based on the concepts that he developed. One thing I'm really um, interested about, like, with all these creatures and stuff, um, it wasn't recently until I um, uh, got on the um, Dark Crystal uh, group page and... Um, and one guy, I think John, he, he posted a lot of images of, I think you posted an image too of um, the miners. Um, yes. That they were created for the film, but they never appeared. Was there any sh- scenes that were actually um, shot that featured the mine? No, just as test shots in New York City. Uh, he was dropped before we left New York. He was developed as, uh, you know, to be these series of creatures that lived underneath the uh, Skeksis castle and supplied them with, you know, jewels and all that stuff. 
I don't know why it was written out, but I guess maybe they thought it was just going to make the movie too long or something, but they just didn't see it as being important to the storyline. The character itself was uh, just dropped before we left. And, and like, what was it like? Um, like, were you on set for most of the shooting days? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, yeah, I was just curious yeah, yeah you know like if your process was yeah. the, the mystic scenes were actually the first scene shot in the movie and um that set was enormous it was probably about three stories high and i had to get all of the mystics on set at once and they had to be ready to go as soon as you know Jim and the second unit director or assistant director said, you know, you know, go. So it was very um, nerve wracking to say the least. <laughs> In fact, I'll remember I was, yeah. I had gotten all the mystics lined up and waiting to go onto set. And the, uh, one of Jim's assistants, who it was his first movie, was just like having an incredible panic attack, you know, because he had never worked. I don't think he had ever worked on a film before. And he came running up to me and I'm, I was standing by the first mystic that was supposed to go walk in to set. And I was sitting there, you know, or standing next to him eating, you know, a bacon egg sandwich because I hadn't had any breakfast yet. And he came running up to me and he goes, Tim, are you sure these are all ready? Are, are all of these guys ready to go? And I said, yes, they are. Don't worry about it. Everybody's set. Everybody's ready, you know, to walk on set. He's like, because you realize this is costing us like $5,000 a minute. And I was like, okay, okay. You know, it's like that I didn't need to know, but yes, everybody's ready. And sure enough, we got all the mystics onto the set, in their position, they were all ready to go, and um, uh, Ozzie Morris, who was the, the cinematographer, said, all right, break for 45 minutes, we have to relight. So it was like, after all that tension, it was just like, oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah, and, big long break, and, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's sort of the case with, with, um, with filming, um, because like I've made a couple of films myself, and it's always the lighting that really takes its time yes. to you know to get it right before you can actually yes, start and, shooting and, it. <laughs> um, even though Dark Crystal was my first movie, I had worked on Sesame Street in New York before I started working on Dark Crystal, so I was kind of used to you know these long breaks. Like the working environment was was it somewhat similar, or was it a bit different between working yeah from TV to film? Uh, television is faster. That's, you know, I mean, because you have to shoot a show a week, so uh, exceptions are made. You're not as detailed-oriented. You know, you, you, you kind of go, okay, that's the best we're going to get right now. That's good enough, you know, and you move on because you just don't have the time to do, um, you know, the detail work that you do in film. Yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, I think, you know, I think why a lot of actors find doing films very, you know, it's not easy, not because the work is hard. It's because a lot of times you're sitting and waiting and you have to stay in character or you have to get back into character very, very quickly, you know, 
once once they're ready. And you know, that's that's why it's it's not an easy thing to be an a, a film actor and you know a Broadway actor and a television actor and switch from one thing to the other because they are all completely different things. Like with filmmaking in general, to have two directors, um, you know, Jim Henson and Frank Oz, um, what was their like collaboration like? Um... Yes, I, I mean, I, I think they had an incredible working relationship. I, I, I mean, Frank was, you know, the great thing about Jim was that he wasn't defensive or he, he wasn't like overwhelmed with his own ego, you know? He was very open to new ideas and anybody could, you know, give him insight into doing something new or different. And he was always opening to listening to that and, and encouraging that. I, I mean, when I started working at Muppets, there were only 25 people working at Muppets. And uh, we were heavily involved in the script writing for Dark Crystal at the very beginning. So a lot of, you know, I, even myself, I had input into yeah. kind of the, some of the storyline and how it was written, which was, you know, incredible when you think about it. I was 22, 23 years old. And here I was helping to, you know, not only build this movie, but advance the storyline. Okay. So, you know, that was a, I think that was a very rare thing. And, uh, and probably why, I mean, First of all, Jim and Frank had worked for many years together and were very close. And I, I know their chauffeur, who used to drive them to work to Muppet Show every morning, said there were a lot of times where they would talk to each other as Ernie and Bert in the back of the car. And, uh, you know, they would start making jokes and, you know, doing all these silly things. And the, the chauffeur said, one time he started laughing so hard he started crying and he couldn't see. So he had to pull off the road to kind of like compose himself and clear his <laughs> eyes and stuff and then, you know, be able to drive on. So he always said that he got to experience the best of the Muppet show that people never saw, you know, because, you know, sometimes they would do some kind of sexual innuendo jokes and, you know, <laughs> Things that would never have gotten on television. Yeah, on so. camera. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That would have been yeah. It would have been interesting to being a chauffeur on <laughs> on those days of the shoot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I guess I'm. I was curious about the mystics. Like you know, when you're trying to um, take them, you know, on set and the whole, I guess, performance. Um, like like the creatures were they pretty heavy overall? Like for the puppeteers or? Gosh, that's a good question. You know. My mission was to try and make them as light as possible. And so a lot of their, the understructure was made out of polyethylene foam, which is very light, and bamboo, and rattan. And I made support rods for their arms so that their arms, because they were outstretched horizontally, in the mystic costumes, I made support uh, rods that 
traveled through a tube so that they could bring it backwards and forwards, and it pivoted left and right. Because, I mean, I had to, you know, test them out myself, and I knew how tiring it was. So it wasn't going to be any good if every five minutes they had a break to give these guys, you know, time to recover from being in some very awkward positions. So um, we had stools for all of them. You know, sometimes they worked sitting on the stools, but um, when as soon as they were off camera, they were always yeah. the the whole front neck section and head would separate from the body uh, very easily. It was velcroed on, and they were able to sit upright and relax. All of the people who were in the Mystics were either dancers or mimes or acrobats and they were in incredible physical condition you know, they had to be it was mm. you know just walking in that position with your knees bent like that and with these huge feet on you know so that they wouldn't stumble it was very difficult it was not an easy job and they did an amazing job making those things come to life. Yeah, de definitely. Yeah, like I really yeah believed in. Um, I guess as a kid watching it um, for the very first time, you know, I really believed in the world and and the creatures as if like that world could have existed many many years ago or mm -hmm. and all that. Um, so the year that you sort of got on board, it was um, would have been nineteen eighty or eighty one. It was. 78, 79. Okay. Was started in New York. And then I worked on Dark Crystal for about two and a half years with breaks in between for Muppet Show and Great Muppet Caper. And, but other than that, the rest of the time was spent almost predominantly on building stuff for Dark Crystal. And that was unheard of. The idea of you would spend two and a half years building characters and props and background creatures and everything else for that length of time is, you know, just amazing. No, definitely. Yeah. And I think it definitely, um, yeah, you, you pulled it off. So, um, I think it was, I think it was definitely worth, you know, the, the amount of, the amount of work that, you know, went into for, yeah, two, two to three years. Um, when, when the film was completed, I, I know you probably, probably touched on, about it on it briefly, but, um, when you saw the film, at its premiere, like, what was your thoughts on it when you saw it the first time? Well, I think the biggest thing was because of the heavy gels losing a lot of the detail. It was because I had seen a lot of the rushes, the daily rushes. I kind of knew what it was going to look like already. But I was thinking, I guess in my head, I was thinking, oh, when they get into editing and cleaning this all up, you know, it will, you'll be able to see stuff better because... The, the rushes are kind of, you know, exactly what they say they are. They're rush film. So I, w I was expecting to see more, which, of course, was not the case. And I was a little disappointed in the, not the, the concept of the story, but some of the dialogue in the story. I thought it wasn't as strong as it should have been. You know, I, I thought it, it could have been more powerful and better written. But that's my own – it's amazing how the response to the movie and how long it's lasted. I knew it was exceptionally different. Yeah. Dark Crystal mm -hmm. wasn't a big blockbuster success when it came out. Yeah. So 
you know, the fact that it's had such longevity and that people are still fascinated with it, wonder about it and in watching it, you know, shows mm-hmm. the true genius that Jim had in conceiving it, that, that this was possible and that he wanted to do it and he made it happen. I guess one of the interesting um, things, I guess, with, with the film, I think when it was shot, um, the Skeksis sort of had their own kind of um, their own language. Yes. Um, whereas, yeah, whereas in the, yeah, in the film, um, like I think they, they had a work print of the version, you know, with all that intact, um, for the audience and sort of got a sort of a negative reaction. They sort of decided to sort of change it to have the Skeksis sort of speak in English and have this narration at the start as well. Um, right. I, because I think the original and somebody, I think somebody has posted you segments or something on YouTube of the original dialogue and that it was going to be done with subtitles. And I guess people just had too hard a time following it. So they switched to doing everything in English. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I actually watched, um, there was like a fan edit of the dark crystal. Um, it was done by, um, Chris, um, uh, from the U S and, um, like, when I watched his fan edit, I think the interesting thing that I kind of realized even more so you know, after I watched it was how visually mm-hmm. um, the whole movie is, um, you know, even re- without the narration or without knowing, you know, what the Skeksis were saying um, and all that. Yeah. You actually worked on the uh, the sculpts with the um, the Dark Crystal uh, figurines um, with Hasbro. Like, how did that originally um, came about? The art director at Muppets in New York, when I came back from working on the movie, Hasbro had bought the license to do the toys for the film. So I was there in the city and he asked me if I would, if I would sculpt the, the toys. And I think this was after I had been working on Fraggle Rock because I think I had been put on freelance at that point. So I actually, I sculpted them in my studio at home and then uh, I went up to Hasbro when they were finished and they were molded in silicone rubber molds, the sculpts were, and then they were cast in plaster two sizes up. And then I had to finish the plasters to make them, you know, as accurate as possible. And it was hard because, you know, toys are very limited in production, you know, mold pieces. It gets very expensive if the more pieces you have. So they wanted everything to break in half. So you have to sculpt mm. to the parting line, which means you end up losing a lot of detail. I, I think the Gartham came out really good. The Mystics are okay because of the parting line issue. And the Landstrider came out quite good too. But the Landstrider was easier to simplify as a form. Well. Like what was, um, I guess, like, unfortunately they didn't get made. Um, was it just something that Hasbro just didn't thought it would be marketable at the end or? No, what happened was, um, they went to toy fair with it. They invited me to toy fair. I was there for the opening. Um, during toy fair, I guess the movie was released or, or some of the executives at Hasbro saw the movie and then suddenly realized that it was way too scary for little kids. And they didn't see, you know, the potential in an adult market buying these things as 
you know, collectibles. Yeah. So they just dropped the whole line. You know, that was it. Boom, gone. I have some of the production samples, but um, the whole line was just dropped. Yeah, it was, just, yeah, it was really, really disappointing. Um, and I guess like, because I just would imagine, you know, had I had these Dark Crystal figurines, I probably would have done like crossover stories with Dark Crystal and Star Wars. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, that would have been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, yeah, it has been interesting that there hasn't been like um, a lot of um, merchandise for the Dark Crystal. Um, well, some of the collectible companies have done resin figurines. Uh, some of them are really good. When I was at, in Los Angeles, uh, George Gaspar had sculpted one of the Gartham, and it was superb for, I can't remember which company it was, uh, Sideshow or something like that, that did. And there's been several small runs of collectible figurines. And as far as I know, they sold well, but, you know, it's really, you have to, you have to have those toys be launched with the film to be successful. And I guess it wasn't, yeah, like till much later over time that I, I guess I want to came on video and I guess, you know, a lot more people sort of discovered it and I guess you had the whole, you know, um, showing it to the next generation of, you know, of fans and all that kind of stuff sort of. Oh, definitely. It's been a lot more profitable through video and DVD sales than it was when it was released as a film. Uh, after you, you know, finished working on the film, were you, were you still, you were still working with the, um, the Hansons? Like, they, I had worked on Fraggle Rock. I built Traveling Matt and I built uh, Jane... Um, Gutnick and I built all the radio controlled fraggles that sing in the background, which that was a major challenge because those mechanisms were, I think, new to Fraggle Rock. And the puppets had to be balanced perfectly, and they also had to be very lightweight in order to work properly. So um, it was a very tedious job making those Muppets. But after Fraggle Rock, you know, Muppets had a lot of projects out there, but none of them got picked up. So quite a few of us were put on freelance rather than being employed full-time. And they just said, well, we'll call you in when we have projects, but we're, we can't afford to keep you all because they had built up a huge staff for Muppet Show, Fraggle Rock, Dark Crystal. So it was just too many people there. So um, while I was working freelance, I, I did a lot of toy sculpting, you know, for uh, Sesame Street characters, as well as uh, the Dark Crystal figures. And then I also worked on a joint venture of Disney and Muppets, which was a, going to be a television version of The Little Mermaid. And we did all the characters as puppets, except for, of course, the mermaid and some other live actors. But um, okay, and the puppets came out beautifully. Unfortunately, the show was not well received. The TV, show, the writing was very weak, and the production quality, the onset production quality, was very poor. So uh, when Disney finally saw that, you know the the kind of pilot they just said, no, 
we're not going ahead with this. And it's too bad because the puppets were fantastic. That would, yeah, it definitely would be interesting to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Had, had it happened as well. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess like you sort of um, being tra- tra- you know you transition more to being a, a, a toy maker. Um, how did how did that come about? Like, was it just because of um, there wasn't a lot of, I guess, work from the Hansons? So you sort of decided to go off and. Well, no, I mean when I was working at at Henson, and before I I think I did the toys for Dark Crystal, I had talked to Jim about because I knew there was you know, less work because we weren't, there was no shows being produced. And I went to Jim and I said, you know, I think we should be designing and building toys to go with the products that we're, you know, doing on film because we can make things that are a lot more creative and different and interesting with new approaches and new materials than the toy companies are doing. And he said to me, Tim, it's a great idea, but I just don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I always say it was like the best kick in the pants I ever got because then when I went on freelance, I said, well, I'm going to, you know, I had a, all these ideas that were puppet related that I wanted to try and do as toys. So I think actually when I was working for Kermit, somebody had invited me to a Halloween party and I didn't want to wear a costume or a mask. So I made this little fly hand puppet that was a glove. And I just wore that, you know, as my costume. And I would just perch it on people's shoulders or put the fly's nose into their drink or something. And people would go, oh, my God, you know, like, <laughs> and jump. And yeah. it got such a great reaction. That I thought, you know, it's like I should do something more with this. So when I was put on freelance, I was searching around for, you know, toy companies that I could show stuff to. The only one who would see me was Hasbro because I had done, you know, work for them freelance. All the rest of the toy companies said, no, we don't see outside inventors. And I was like, well, how the hell do you break into this business if nobody will see you? Yeah. <laughs> and and finally, somebody said to me, one of the people at the toy companies said, you need to go and see an agent, you know, a toy agent, because we don't want to be dealing with people who are bringing ideas that are not their own. We don't want to get into lawsuit situations. Yeah. So I looked in the, I went to Toy Fair in New York City that year. Mm-hmm. I looked at the back of um, Playthings magazine, and there was an ad there by Seven Towns who had developed... Um, Rubik's Cube and they said they were looking for designers and inventors mm-hmm. so I called them up and I was telling them you know, that I had come up with all these different toy concepts and I had been trying to show them but I wasn't getting anywhere and the guy was kind of going well I don't really need any more people you know, it's like we already have a lot of designers working for us and I said well when I was working at Muppets I came up with all these concepts that I've been trying to show. And, and he said, oh, you worked at Muppets? And I said, yes. And then he said, oh, okay, then you should come. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where it started. And that hand fly puppet was then turned into um, Sectors, which was the first toy line I sold uh, through Seven Towns yeah. that was sold to Coleco. Okay, yeah. 
So and, and Boglins came after that. Um, and Boglins was sold to Mattel, and then Mattel had it for two years, and they decided they didn't want to go forward with it anymore because they wanted to concentrate on toys that were being giving them bigger revenue. Um, and then we took the concept and sold it to Ideal in uh, England. Yeah. So, yeah. and then from there they went crazy. I mean, they were a huge success in in England and Europe for um, probably seven or eight years. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm working hard to bring them get back. them back out. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I have we have two different toy companies who are interested and. So it's just hopefully just a matter of time before something comes to fruition. Yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, would love to, yeah, see them back and yeah, just see them, yeah, just myself. Um, that'd be awesome if it, yeah, if it come to uh, fruition. Yeah, because if I don't get them out there soon, it's like everybody's ripping them off right and left anyway. So you know, it's like I have to get Boglins out there just to reestablish, you know, the brand. That they first. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how how can um how can people um, find you on on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook? I'm not on Twitter. Instagram, it's Tim Clark Toys. Clark has an e at the end. Yeah. On Tumblr, it's the same. I have um, a website with Chaz, the new designer toys and collectible toys I've been working on, Totems. That's www.totims. It's dot uh, com. It's a play on my name, and um, the totems are like totem poles, but uh, a lot more grotesque, to say the least. And um, I have another website which is called www.drphin. Doctor Finn. Dot com, which is dedicated to a lot of the hand puppets I have designed for toy companies as well as more recent uh, hand puppets that I have created. And the totems and the hand puppets are available for purchase on those websites. Oh, and the other thing is I'm going to be at New York Comic Con uh, I, I'm going to, or going to be in New York at that time for New York Comic Con. I will be at the Clutter booth showing the new totems as well as um, some new things that I'm doing, you know, that I can't talk about yet. And um, I'll be doing signings of posters and artwork, original art and some sculpts and all that kind of thing. Um, on the Saturday of uh, Comic Con, and then I will be at Designer Con in uh, Pasadena uh, in November, out in California, and I'll be at the Toy Art Gallery booth for that for that show. Doing the same. So, I'm I'm, I'm there's never a dull moment. <laughs> No, it's a bit busy life being a a toy maker and yeah, just puppet designer. And actually, I just finished doing um, three puppets for a children's television show, which I'm part of the production staff of um, 
and we are going into rehearsals in September, the end of September, and we'll be shooting the pilot in October, the end of October. So, yeah, it's like I got my hands in a lot of different venues, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. A lot on your plate. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. All right, um, yeah, no, thanks for being part of the show, and, um, yeah, and thanks um, yeah, so much for your, for your work and your contributions um, to The Dark Crystal and, and everything that you do. Um, yeah, always excited to see um, yeah, what, what you'd be doing next and all that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, and good luck with your podcast and your ventures in filmmaking. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it, yeah. You've already taken too long, Delfling. Hurry! At last, the crystal calls. It is time. Time to return to the castle. The crystal calls! To the crystal chamber! Well, that's all the time I have for this month's Trial by Stone. Big thanks to Tim Clark for being this month's guest. If you want to contact myself about the show, send me an email at trialbystonepodcasts at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash trialbystonepodcast or on Twitter at trialbystonepod. If you enjoyed the show and think that others would like it too, then write a review on iTunes and help other Dark Crystal fans find out about the show. I hope you all enjoyed this podcast and come back for the next episode of Trial by Stone.